Say now, say now. You're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, and today we got a real special guest on the line on the Zoom call. Not quite the Google Hangouts, but um, this is probably the most special guest that we had on here. And after I introduce him, I'll elaborate a little bit more on that. But he is the host of the Ball Face Truth radio show on 750 The Game. He's the sports columnist for The Oregonian. You might have seen him on your TV screen on KGW on Sports Sunday. He's an award-winning journalist, columnist, all the things. John Canzano, man, thank you for joining me. Man, this is a real treat for me. I love being here. Devon, I uh, love what you're doing with this. I appreciate it, man. And the reason why I said that you might be the most special guest to come on this podcast is because a lot of people don't know that this podcast didn't initially start as a podcast. It actually started as a pitch for a radio show. I was an intern for you with the Ball Face Truth. And as we were inching towards the end of the internship, you called me into the host studio and you said, hey, Devon, man, what do you want to do next? And it didn't take me long to respond. I said, you know what? I want to do what you're doing. I want to have my own show. And so you sort of gave me the play-by-play on, you know, how to put a presentation together for a radio show. Um, you actually connected Malika Andrews and I, and Malika's actually killing it out there yeah. in the bubble right now with ESPN. She's just doing phenomenal. But you connected us. You had us do a demo together. And her and I nervously got through that demo. Um, I submitted the demo and initially not much came about um, from that, but she ended up getting the James Reston fellow position with the New York Times. And I ended up saying, you know what? I might as well have her on as the very first guest and turn Wake Up and Win to a podcast. And so that's how this podcast started. You really kind of, you know, showed me the ropes and, and put me through what I needed to go through to be able to pitch a show and formulate a show. So this is huge because this is kind of like your baby or your grandbaby, or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, you yeah. know, here's the thing. Like, look, we all, um, you know, I grew, I was nine years old. I had a typewriter, right? And I sat down and I started writing. And I didn't know that I was going to be a writer. I didn't know I would be a sports writer. I didn't know I would host a radio show, any of that. I just knew what I loved to do. And yeah. what I saw in you and obviously Malika as well is like, you guys have passion and you have talent. And in this era where the format has all shifted, like we all don't know where it's going to land. Nobody, you guys, um, it was just a matter of you guys jumping in and, yeah. and, and letting that talent shine. So for you, especially Devon, like to see you take the stuff that you know, sports and culture, and then turn that into, you know, a podcast that is successful, uh, you know, is uh, it's a treat for me. I love watching it, man. And I, I I don't think I played any role in it. I just kind of asked you, hey, what do you want to do? And you said what you wanted to do. You, you had the answers inside of you. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you still played a role in it because like you said, I really didn't know what I was getting into even as I began interning for you. Honestly, I just needed an internship to graduate college. And I had like a little campus radio show going on, a hip hop show. And, you know, my head coach at the time, Tim Cleary, was able to connect me with you. And, you know, as I got, once I got there and I showed up, I'm like, oh, man, this is the real thing going on here. And so it really pushed me and influenced me in a way that I really never knew I could be. Because, like I said, coming into the situation, I really wasn't that aware of what I was getting into. Well, I've had a lot of interns over the years, and it's interesting to see the interns like yourself that have taken that advantage of that time and 
and really um, extracted something out of it that you could use moving forward versus the interns who are just there showing up, trying to check a box. So yeah. while you just needed that for graduation, I still saw you. And I'm, I'm the kind of person where if somebody's going to show initiative and somebody has talent, I'm going to invest in them. Yeah. And there are a lot of people like I would say about 80, 85 percent of the interns that come through are just there. They're a little yeah. lost. They're not sure what is, this is what they want to do. Um, I have a lot of tough conversations with them and feel like I'm parenting in some cases. But uh, with interns like yourself, I, I just felt like you, you were there and you were serious about it and you were curious about it and trying to figure out where you fit. And I think that was it. That was a lot of uh, and there's there's growing pains in that, too. But oh, yeah, <laughs> that was interesting. Absolutely, man. And, I, and I'm still learning and going and growing. So, you know, the game, the game must continue and I'm still at it. But uh, let's get into some content here, because yeah. last week you released your top 25 most influential sports figures list. It's an annual list that you put out. Um, it sparks up all kinds of conversations here in the market. Um, I know some people are honored and grateful to be a part of that list. You probably got some people that are a little salty that they didn't make the cut. Um, <laughs> you certainly got a, a huge base of, of, you know, listeners and subscribers that check the list out and are invested in it. But 2020 has obviously been an odd year. I want to know what was the criteria for your list this year in comparison to maybe other years or does the criteria stay the same? For me, when I started this, and look, I started this like 18 or 20 years ago when I got here, I, I showed up and I said, you know, who are the difference makers? And I started keeping a list over the course of a year. And then somebody said, you should print that list. Yeah. And uh, media are not eligible, so I don't want to be pandered by media. But it, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really interesting because my initial thought was it's going to be Paul Allen, Phil Knight. It will be the same characters over and over again every year. And ultimately... What I have found is that there are five or six brand new people to the list every year, and it's never the same. And 2020 is a great example of that. There's six newcomers to the list. The number one is a new person, Governor Kate Brown. And with that, I would say, like, influence doesn't necessarily mean positive or negative influence. It's mm -hmm. just impact. It's yeah. juice. It's who matters. Who are the difference makers? Who moves the needle in the market? And I feel like you know, some people took offense that I put the governor at number one, but Governor Kate Brown held the keys to youth sports, high school sports, all the counties. Still, the colleges that are located across the state still have are still, uh, you know, have to pass phase one, phase two, phase three uh, criteria in order to get back to playing. Portland State, for example, you yeah. know, the Big Sky College basketball could start on November 25th. They have to be in phase three in order to practice. Mm. So they may be delayed and the rest of the big sky can play. And to me, that's influence. Yeah. And if Portland state is delayed, obviously I'm delayed as well because <laughs> yeah. I am the college basketball analyst over there. But um, I want to dig more into Kate Brown being number one on the list and exactly why you put her there, because obviously um, we love kind of that intersection of sports and politics here on this podcast. So tell me a little bit more why Kate Brown ended up becoming number one for you. I think it's a one-off year, right? In most years, she's not going to register. She uh, she has become more of a sports fan. She's been more visible, especially at Oregon and Oregon State women's basketball games. So she's been there. I've seen her. She seems invested in it. And that's great. That doesn't get her on the list, but it's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, but just 2020 being this coronavirus, uh, you know, nightmare for everybody is, it puts her in such an interesting position. And 
you saw the youth sports scene in this state just absolutely come to a crawl. There are parents that are frustrated. There are still swim coaches who can't figure out why the swimming pools aren't open. Uh, can, you know, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, when she initiated sort of her directives, she left sports out of it altogether. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I was getting buried with emails from parents and coaches and, you know, program directors who were saying, hey, um, we're trying to have a season here. Can we practice? Can we not practice? Can six kids get together? Can three kids get together? So she held the keys. And I think hopefully this is a one-off, right? Because hopefully we move through this. Uh, we get some therapeutics, maybe a vaccine. And Kate Brown's not as influential in the sports scene moving forward. But right now, she's got control of this thing. And, yeah. you know, I was talking to the big sky this morning and I said, what's your plan? They said November 25th, but we're waiting for directives from the NCAA. But you've got Eastern Washington, you've got Sacramento State, and you've got Portland State that are all going to be looking at the governors in their respective states going, can we practice? Because right now, Multnomah County, where Portland State is located, Kate Brown says you have to be in phase three in order to have full contact practices. So if you're Barrett Peary at Portland State or you're the women's basketball program at Portland State, you can't have a normal practice like some of the other Big Sky Conference members without Kate Brown. And the high school sports scene got pushed to the spring. That was all the governor in this state. In Utah, they're playing, they're playing high school football. So yeah. I'm not really debating whether it's the right decision or wrong decision, but Kate Brown had the keys. Absolutely. Now, I want to stick to women here because you did have Sabrina Ionescu on the list. Now, for me personally, I thought she was a bit far down. I think you had her at 22 on the list. Um, that was a bit far down for me. And a lot of the reason, obviously, is because what she's been able to do at the University of Oregon. Um, she's, you know, unfortunately not to be, you know, mortal here or, you know, not to really kind of speak to death, but her connection with Kobe Bryant, I think that raised her profile in ways that obviously none of us wish would have happened or taken place. But the reality is it did. Um, the WNBA is kind of taking the stance that they're, that they're taking right now. And she's obviously one of the more prominent figures in that league. Why so low for Sabrina? Yeah, I had her much higher a year ago. I think I had her 11th a year ago. She's dropped. I felt like a couple things happened there. A, had they finished their season and she goes to the final four again and they win the thing, she's much higher. Yeah. B, she's graduated. She's left the state and she's now in New York playing her professional basketball. And But I still think she has impact. I mean, Kelly Graves told me uh, that, you know, he asked all of his incoming players, who's your favorite player? And they used to say Kobe, Kevin Durant, Steph, you know, they'd give, you know, uh, an NBA player's name. He said he has five McDonald's All-Americans who came in this year at Oregon, uh, in large part because of Sabrina. I mean, that's her impact. And that's why she's still on the list. But he asked them, who's your favorite player? All five of them said Sabrina Ionescu. Yeah, yeah, she, she's like that. She's really that good. Um, but no, man, that was a great list. And like I said, it, it's something that sparks great conversation. I saw um, Portland State Athletics Director Valerie Cleary reach out to you and say that she, she was obviously honored to be on the list. I think she was at like 24, but um, she thought that John Cazano also should be on that list. And I know no you media, said that man. media no can't, can't make it, but, 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 but I think that comment is to be acknowledged because of the, the discussions that you spark, you know, in this region and really nationally good, bad, or in between, regardless of how people feel about it. Yeah. Valerie Cleary is interesting because as I look at the list, and this is something maybe you could help me with, because I look at this list and, you know, I get to 25 and there's a group below that 
where you could take any number of the people who were the near misses. There's about another 25 or 30 names there. You could take five or eight of those and, and make an argument that they should, be, they should be on the list. Barrett Perry, basketball coach, Portland State. Bruce Barnum, the football coach of Portland State. Scott Lakeham, the athletic director of University of Portland. You can make arguments for a lot of those players, you know. And, uh, and the thing that strikes me, though, is you have Valerie Cleary and you have Damian Lillard. Those were yeah. the only two uh, black people who are on this list. Yeah. And I, every year I'm looking at this list, I'm waiting for the Blazers. I'm waiting for the Timbers. I'm waiting for Oregon state or Oregon, somebody to put a person of color in a position where I have to put them on the list. And that's frustrating to me. And I'm looking at the Blazers and they have like a director of communications, uh, who is a person of color and that's okay. That's cool. Yeah. But I can't, you know, I, I sh- it shouldn't be incumbent upon me to make that change. I, and I and we hear a lot of talk about people saying, well, we were all about opportunity. But where are the opportunities on this list? And I think this list screams that. Yeah. That if you're the Blazers, the Timbers, uh, Oregon State, Oregon, I think it's shameful that there's not more diversity that uh, I'm challenged to put on this list in positions of sports management in particular. Because without Lillard and Valerie Cleary, this list is white. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I'm even looking at what's going on in the streets of Portland with like Black Lives Matter protesting, and I'm looking at a lot of the coverage of it. Um, and even that seems to be infiltrated with white people. And I'm, obviously, I'm speaking from a different landscape there, but when you look at what the actual issue is that we are covering here, to see that it's so white dominant is really interesting to me in regards to the coverage and what a lot of these publications and, you know, a lot of these news organizations are putting out there. So, I mean, I think you deal with that, you know, in a lot of different landscapes and maybe CJ McCullum is the other black athlete that could have made the top 25 list. Um, and then I also think of, I'm thinking of, uh, Somebody off the timbers, the guy, he's super political out. I, you know who I was looking at was uh, Jaden Grant, Brian Grant's kid. I think yeah. he, his influence has really risen. But, you know, okay, so in a given year, over the years, I've had LaMarcus Aldridge on the list or, um, you know, I've had uh, Brandon Roy on this list or Greg Oden on this list. What I'm really looking for is, you know, since the Trailblazers president, Larry Miller, left the organization – you know, you have a, uh, you know, the, the top tier of the management positions with the Blazers are white and yeah. Timbers are white. And I think if the question for them, this is something I'm really thinking about writing in a column form is I don't think they have a comfortable answer for this because yeah. a couple of years ago, I raised the idea that there weren't more women in positions of management. And mm-hmm. I was told, oh, we're really making an emphasis and a push. Well, why is it incumbent upon you know, uh, really this list is a reflection of the state. Yeah, it is. And what this is saying is unless you're an athlete in this state or you're Valerie Cleary, um, this list is white. And I think if I'm the Timbers, Thorns, Blazers, Oregon and Oregon State in particular, I'm going, hey, we don't really have a good answer for this. Maybe we need to look at ourselves. No, that, that's a real interesting take, man. Because like you said, obviously you can put 25 athletes on there and it'd be a yep. list, but that makes the list no fun. So, right. you know, when you go out into sports management and, you know, front office positions and things of that sort, you see a drastic and a steep decline of blacks and people of color on that. Um, but I do want to transition a bit. I want to talk about the Blazers. Obviously, yep. um, they had 
a pretty good outing, I would say, in the bubble. You know, they were able to sneak their way into the playoffs. Damian Lillard obviously played like a monster out there, ended up being MVP of the bubble. Um, season's over now, though. 4-1 loss to the Lakers in that series. What do you think is next for the Trailblazers? What do they need to do to take a step towards being back to maybe even where they were last year when they made it to the Western Conference Finals? I think this is the most pivotal offseason in some time for the Blazers, maybe since 2007 when they had the number one pick and, and you know, got Odin. It, I look at um, Damian Lillard's right knee, first and foremost, is a question. Yeah. They said those MRIs were inconclusive. That's so, never good. Usually that's it's not, not good. good. No, Anybody not at all. Anybody played sport or had a knee, I've had knee surgeries, you want, you want an answer in that yeah. MRI. Hey, you need a surgery or you don't need a surgery. Not (laughs) hearing that right now. And now he's getting further evaluation. So, um, you know, given the history of this franchise and knee injuries, you have to at least be a little anxious about that. The other thing is, let's not give them a pass. They have the highest payroll in the NBA. Okay. They're spending more than anyone. And they got one first round victory in a playoff series. So, uh, when they flame out, they flame out. We all know that. We've seen them swept. We've seen them losing five now. And and clearly they had injuries, but I have to look at sort of their history here. And and they've relied on the draft. It's been spotty. I think they did a real nice job getting C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. But in two years, C.J. McCollum will make more than $30 million. He'll be the 11th highest paid player in the NBA. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much for C.J. You're going to pay Damian Lillard $50 million in a couple of few years. He's going to be the highest paid player in the league. So you have a looming problem if you're the Blazers and you have a narrow window. And it's why I think they've got some really difficult decisions. I think they have to take some risks. I think they have to consider trading C.J. McCollum. As much as I like the guy, I'm not sure that it's the right fit for Damian Lillard. Uh, The guy that I really like is Joel Embiid. I don't know how you feel about that, but um, if you could put together some kind of deal – uh, in which you try to get a player of Embiid's caliber to stick alongside Damian Lillard, I would do everything possible there because this Yusuf Nurkic, Rodney Hood, Carmelo coming back, it feels to me like, look at the Western Conference, right? Yeah. Lakers, Clippers, Mavericks look scary. The Jazz and Nuggets, they look good. Great series. Memphis is coming on. Here comes uh, Zion in, in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. Where does that leave the Blazers? How about the Warriors? They're going to be better. I mean, yeah. the, the Blazers is like maybe the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth best team in the West. And that can't be the ceiling for Damian Lillard's career. It can't be that, hey, well, he once made the Western Conference Finals. If that's it, they've failed. Yeah, I agree 100% because he has proven himself to be that elite of a player where you should be able to build a championship program around him based on his on-court production and based on, you know, his leadership capabilities. You need a leader to win a championship for any team more more often than not. So um, I do agree there. Obviously, I take a move like Embiid over there. Um, You get Embiid and Lillard together, you instantly – changed that defense like drastically and they had gaping holes in that defense um, out there in the bubble and I think that's the reason that they probably weren't even a bit more dominant um, during the regular season and you had so many games where you know you had a new strand of hair turning gray because things would go down to the wire and Dame has to score 51 or 61 to be able to you know get over the top and just win that game and make it to the next night. Um, Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. You know basketball. I think Damian Lillard's season was amazing. Like you yeah. look at what he did and and with the injuries around him, amazing. 
but I have reasonable doubt that he can duplicate that. Like, can he do that again next year? And we watch guards in their thirties. Like there's some nice performances, but we've all watched Chris Paul kind of age out and we've watched guards in their thirties for years in this league sort of, Hey, they kind of hit a peak in their late twenties. Damian Lillard turned 30. I think he's got like two really good years left. And then yeah. it's, well, maybe after that. So, I think they got to go for it. I, I definitely think, you know, now is the time, and he's certainly in his prime right now. But, I mean, to see the trajectory of the guy from the beginning of his career up until now, I mean, he was a rookie of the year. And to see his trajectory just constantly, you know, yeah. trend upward in the upward direction, um, I got to say maybe he's got three to four of these years left in him. You know, once you hit 34, things things tend to get a bit tougher. But I can see you know, Damien having – <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and he's, a, he's a shooter. I think, you know, shooters tend to be able to last a bit longer. He's not like somebody of a Westbrook's caliber who has to just bruise and bruise and bruise and get to the basket and try to score in the paint and, you know, take contact from here, there, and everywhere. Um, and guys really can read Westbrook in ways where, you know, if they want to take him out, they know how to take him out because he's got one speed, he's got one pace, and, 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 you know, he really doesn't know how to change speeds, nor can he shoot it to where he makes a defender think too much. Um, his explosiveness gets him over the hump, though. But with Dame, I think um, he knows how to keep defenders, you know, off guard. I think he's a very high IQ player. And I think, you know, even when some of his athleticism, athleticism begins to decline, that his IQ as a player will keep him elite for at least the next four more years or so. And, and look, here's the, here's the thing. I mean, uh, I know that he bought a five-acre piece of land with a house on it in, yeah. in the suburbs. <laughs> he just did that a couple months ago. Yeah. I think he's in it for the, for the hall. I don't think he, this loyalty thing I think is real. So he's going to stay. So you have a question here, and I think the answer is simple. But you have C.J. McCollum, who I really like as a player. I just don't think he fits with Dame, and I think he's overpaid at $30 million a year. Yeah. So you have he, you have Yusuf Nurkic, you have, you know, what do you try to re-sign Carmelo and Hassan Whiteside? And I just look at that and I go, if I'm advising this franchise, everything's on the table. I'm yeah. trying to get an all-star player to put alongside Damian Lillard. And maybe Gary Trent Jr. can be, who's a bigger guard, maybe he can be that guy who plays alongside Dame in the backcourt. No, I agree 100%. you you got to make a move now. Like, you don't really have much time to waste if you're the Blazers. But going forward with the NBA playoffs, I saw you tweet something um, after, or during, maybe it was during that game five, you know, and you said, the more I watch the Lakers, the more I like the Clippers. So <laughs> I'm taking it you got the Clippers coming out of the West, huh? Yeah, I do. I, I think, look, LeBron, Anthony Davis, are, they're the best two players on the court in any given series. But I think in that Clippers series, they're going to run into a deeper team that can defend a little bit. Um, if Kawhi is healthy and the Clippers come into that series focused, I like the Clippers. And I, I don't think it's a seven-game series. I think the Lakers are going to get exposed a little bit. Yeah. With, you know, their lack of perimeter shooting their lack of depth. I, I think we saw it in game one, even in, in parts of game two and three. Anthony Davis and LeBron were just too much for the Blazers. It was, yeah. it was just too much. It was over. They were, 100%. Yeah, but I just look at that, and I, and I, I keep looking at the Lakers going, you know, they could have used Carmelo off the bench. They could have used some shooting, uh, an outside shooter, or a guy who could be in that second rotation. And, and I think um, they're going to run into a point here, unless – Rajon Rondo comes back with a vengeance as playoff Rondo. I think yeah. 
they they just don't have the depth, consistency, and the shooting. I think they're going to need to get past the Clippers. Who do you think comes out of the East? Man, I I had the Bucks, but you know the Heat are <laughs> the Heat are looking good. It, it, it's so funny. It to me, it th- this bubble is so weird. Yeah, and it is. The game sevens we've seen have no fans. And so that game seven advantage is lost if you're the home team yeah. hosting a game seven. And I think we saw it with the um, both with the uh, Jazz and the Nuggets and with the Rockets and the Thunder. It was like, hey, you got a shot if you're in there. So I think what Miami's doing in the East is exciting. It's It could be a surprise there. I think the champion comes out of the West regardless. I think it's the Clippers all the way. I think, yeah. I think to me they're the easy pick. I agree. I've had the Clippers all the way since day one, so I'm going to stick with that. They haven't really given me a real legit reason to stray away from that. Um, In the East, it was always Toronto or or Boston for me. And obviously, I mean, Boston is up 2-0 right now against Toronto. So it's looking like Boston is going to come out of that series. But like you said, it's the bubble. The Raptors are well coached. Um, They got a lot of championship experience. I'm not quite calling that series a wrap yet, but Boston's looking good. And if they end up meeting the Heat in the conference finals, I think Boston takes that as well. And, you know, they they lose to the Clippers in six or seven in the NBA finals. Um, But I want to transition out of the NBA. And I want to talk a little bit more about John Canzano here. And I want to kind of tell a little story because uh, I had a sobering moment with John Canzano. It was... 2017 or something like that. We were going to cover a Ducks game. It was me, you, and Andrew Greif. Um, We met up in the Portland area. We carpooled down to Eugene to go cover a Ducks game. And we park. And when we go to park, we get out of the car, me, you, and Greif. Greif now with the LA Times. He was here on the podcast a few weeks ago. And uh, we came out the car and instantly fans started booing us. Well, more so I would say booing you. (laughs) They started booing you. And the reason why that was sobering for me is because I'm 24 years old at the time. I'm a sports radio host in a top 25 media market. Like I think I'm the, you know, sugar, honey, iced tea. And when we get out the car and I realized that a lot of people would look at that as a bad thing, or they would kind of try to put you in a negative light because, you know, your opinions or what your takes may be may not necessarily be popular amongst fans, but a whole lot of fans obviously consume it. And where it was sobering for me is I felt like you don't have great success if you don't have some haters in the crowd or some haters on the sideline or folks that just don't stand for what you stand for and are willing to voice it in the way that those fans were willing to do in that, in that parking lot out there in Eugene, Oregon. And so What I want to ask you as a columnist, as a radio host, as somebody who gets paid for your opinion, how do you navigate through, you know, the the fans or the folks that really come at you in some of the harsher ways? Because, you know, you're not here for to give a popular opinion. You're here to give your opinion and people may not react to it in a positive way necessarily. Yeah, and it's interesting. There have been some years where um, that parking lot hasn't been safe. I mean, you know, that that's in more recent years, the vast majority of those people are, if you approach them, would have a civil discussion and, you know, it's kind of a good natured, we understand sports isn't war, it's not life or death, it's not a, a pandemic, you know, yeah, this yeah. is, it's a diversion. And so most people get that, but there were a couple of years where um, 
they, uh, the University of Oregon assigned a security guard to walk with me through the parking lot because wow. you had some people that were throwing things. You had some people that were threatening. Um, you had, I had one guy who claimed I punched him. He wrote a letter to the sports editor saying I punched him in the parking lot. And so um, the uh, Oregonian also wanted me to have a witness with me, you know, that was a credible <laughs> witness. So we, we talked about hiring a security guard. I brought my church pastor with me to a couple games Wow. because I found that to be a credible witness. And he happened to be a college football fan. So I said, hey, you come down, come with me to the game. But yeah. bottom line is, look, I realize that, you know, I, I'm a columnist. I'm paid for opinions. And so, the, you know, people will come up to me and they'll say, the uh, first thing they'll say is, you know, I don't agree with everything that you write or everything that you say on the radio. And my wife doesn't agree with it either. Like, she does, if, any, if you agree with everything that I think, then this is going to be a boring sports world. So my, you know, I, I've worked in six different markets. I've worked in places where fans didn't care. I was in the Bay Area covering the Niners and Raiders. There was a, there's a little apathy around it. You know, they love their teams, but not like here. And I've covered Notre Dame football as a beat reporter, Indiana basketball as a beat reporter. They really care about those fan bases too. So yeah. I prefer to be somewhere where people care. I also know that I'm going to say things or write things that – the diehard fan who loves their team, win or lose, thick or thin, is not going to like. And yeah. and I get it. I sleep well going, look, I'm, I'm spitting my truth. And, you know, it, it sparks a larger discussion. Great. Um, but I think at that time, it was all about Mark Helfrich and that era being, you know, having a disappointing trajectory. And I get out of the parking lot and they boo. And then you go 10 feet further and somebody high fives you and says, Hey, I agree with you. You know, it's, yeah. so you kind of have to take the good with the bad. I don't take it personally. Some people get unhinged. Um, and you know, we've had, we've had death threats over the years and people say, or call with weird things, but, but by and large, most fans get it. And it's just like social media. Uh, you know, I saw something about Twitter where it said 30% of the users on Twitter account for 70% of the tweets. So you have a real vocal minority. And, you know, while I get eight people booing me, I feel like it's good natured in that, you know, uh, you know, somebody's got to tell them, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Somebody absolutely. has to say that. And I, and I think to me, I look at it as fun. It's a diversion. It's not personal. Even uh, the relationships I've had with coaches over the years, I've, cri I've been critical of Chip Kelly and had him call me and say, you know, he loves that we mix it up. And Mario Cristobal, I've had disagreements with him, and he'll call me and say, hey, you know, you say what you need to say. Jonathan Smith, the same thing. So, you know, as long as the coaches know that I'm being fair with them, even Damian Lillard, I had a conversation with him on the day that he hit the 37-foot shot against the Thunder and Paul George. It was the right before that game. I walked up to him and I said, you've been playing lights out. You deserve, you deserve a lot of credit. And he said, thanks. And uh, he said, uh, I feel like you've been unfair with me at different times. And I said, well, I said, you have enough people kissing your butt. And I said, but, you know, I'll be fair with you. I, if I'm ever unfair, tell, tell me you think I'm unfair. Let's have a conversation about it. And he said, okay. And I'm glad we had that talk because I think that's a mature, reasonable, professional uh, discussion in which a player is just saying, hey, give me a fair shake. And I'm saying, I'll give you a fair shake. And if you think I don't, let's talk about it. I think you have, I'm more interested in whether or not people think I treat them fairly yeah, and whether or not the fans, are, you know, agree or disagree with my opinion. That's real. That's real. What would you say is the most impactful story you've ever written? I mean, you're a, 
I mean, you're an AP Sports Columnist of the Year, a multi-time AP Sports Columnist of the Year award winner. What would you say is your most impactful story that you're most proud of? Immediately, the thing that popped in my mind was Brenda Tracy. And, you know, she has gone on. She was on the list of the 25 most influential. She's become the advocate nationally for campus safety and, you know, uh, really looking hard at athletic departments that aren't making their campuses safe. And I'm talking about sex assault now and what is an issue for men really on campus. This is a male dominated thing that it's not women who are by and large assaulting men on college campuses. It's the other way around. Brenda Tracy wrote me an email, um, you know, it was like six or seven years ago. And uh, I got the email and she was really upset at Oregon State and said, look, uh, I was gang raped in 1998. Here's what happened. Here's my police report. I met with her and uh, reviewed what had happened to her. And she had really been let down. Oregon State had dropped the ball. It did not properly investigate or punish the athletes. Um, It didn't protect her. It really put football first. And uh, we wrote that story and we wrote her story. And you know, of all the sports columns and everything, there's a lot of stuff I do that doesn't matter. Like, you know, the Blazers, what should they do in the off season? That's fun to talk about. It doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. Brenda Tracy mattered and not just, you know, the stuff she's done, but as a person, she mattered. And it was important that, you know, she felt to me, it was important that she felt validated and heard and got to tell her story because she had spent, you know, 16 or 18 years sitting in silence going, why weren't these guys prosecuted? And as I talked to the district attorney and I talked to other people involved and even talked to the, uh, the uh, alleged assailants, uh, the district attorney told me the case always bothered her, that you know she felt like this was a slam dunk conviction. They admitted to raping her. You know, yeah. the, uh, they admitted it. And right. because at that time it required the uh, survivor to testify, um, she did not want to testify. At that time, it required the survivor to testify. Um, the, the charges were dropped. And if that had happened today, in today's world, they would have prosecuted it without her. They didn't need her. They already had the admissions from two of the four men that that it was a sex assault. So she has now turned that into, and this is all her. Yeah. She turned that into changing laws. She changed the statute of limitations in the state of Oregon for the crime of rape. She has started the set the expectation pledge and gone around nationally and, and talked. And, you know, I've been there when she's talking to groups. She talks to these college football teams and you can hear a pin drop in the room. Everybody's locked onto what she's saying because they know it's real. It happened to her. And the way she speaks about it is so powerful. So when you ask me about that, I think it's Brenda Tracy, 100%. Absolutely, man. That's really dope. Now, not to get to a little bit more of a sadder note, um, but you wrote a column the other day about Uncle Cliff, you know, Cliff Robinson, uh, former trailblazer. Kind of speak to us about that and, you know, what this death sort of means to Portland sports fans. Yeah, I saw that on Saturday morning. He's 53 years old. It's lymphoma. Cliff Robinson, who was such a part of that Blazers era that everybody felt great about, uh, passes away. And I immediately thought about Kevin Duckworth, uh, you know, 44 years old, died. Jerome Kersey, 52, died. Maurice Lucas, 58, died. It was like all these guys were too young. And they're part of Portland, right? Yeah. And they're part of the fabric of the state of Oregon. And, and uh, I walked into the kitchen, and my wife's making waffles with the, with the four-year-old. And I looked at her, and I knew right away she already knew, because I was going to tell her. I said, hey, you know. But yeah. I looked at her, 
and her eyes were glassy and I just gave her a hug. And, you know, for people who don't know Anna's story, she immigrated from Taiwan with her parents. They bought a motel on Sandy Boulevard and they owned and operated that thing. It was a 28 unit motel. And it was a place that was rife with uh, drug use and sex trafficking. And there were murders along that stretch of Sandy Boulevard. And she grew up amid that. And I look at her and she becomes this news anchor and reporter. And I the best, journal, the best journalist in the house? Yeah, I mean, easily. <laughs> but like the journalist in me is going like, okay, how did that happen? Because it flies in the face of everything that we know about environment and kids growing up. And she starts talking about all the great teachers she had and how she dove into school and school activities. And she used to stay at school till like eight o'clock at night, be part of every club she could be part of. She just escaped from her world that way. But then when she was home... In the 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s, it was the trailblazers. They, she yeah. was in the living room listening to Bill Shonley and rooting for Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter and Jerome and Duck and, and Uncle Cliffy. And so, you know, for her, she never got to see a game. Like she didn't, you know, she went to one basketball, one Blazers game as a kid. And it was a family friend who took her to a game that was at the Tacoma Dome against the Sonics. And, you know, she, but she, in her mind, that was her team. Those were her guys. And so they, and for a lot of people in Portland, I think Cliff Robinson and Jerome and Duck and Buck Williams and that era of Blazers basketball really was an escape from whatever was going on in their world. Absolutely, man. And I can't acknowledge Clifford Robinson without also acknowledging, you know, two deaths that we had, one within the sports world, um, one within the acting and movie world. Um, you know, we had Coach John Thompson, who yeah. passed away. Um, I don't know if you have any stories. I know you you covered Indiana. I don't know if you ever covered an Indiana-Georgetown game in those days. Um, but, you know, it hits home with me a lot more so from the sense of somebody like an Allen Iverson. And, you know, I've, I've heard Allen Iverson acknowledge uh, John Thompson, you know, as a father figure, as somebody who saved his life. And, and I've had those sentiments myself with, with both of those, both of my college coaches at the junior college level, um, Steve coach Amiglio, he's a hall of fame coach. Now he just retired last week actually. And I spoke with him and, you know, he played a key role in keeping my life together when it was really falling apart, you know, playing junior college basketball, um, but also, you know, engaging in some other things that um, probably could have took me, down a, a very bad path, you know, but basketball and him sticking with me during that time. I mean, I, I had even, you know, me and my father were living together and we had even got evicted during the time that I was playing ball over there. And, you know, he really stuck with me. So I, I really feel for AI and all of that with John Thompson. Have you ever covered John Thompson or, or anything to that extent? Or what's some of your thoughts? Well, on? I grew, I'll tell you, my experience was I grew up watching those Georgetown teams with Patrick Ewing and, and Georgetown Villanova. Right. And yeah. watching, and having so much respect for the way they played and then becoming a journalist who was in the room in NCAA tournament events. And John Thompson would walk in the room. He was just larger than life. I mean, just this giant human being and, and legendary, like, you know, bigger than his persona would walk in the room with him and it was bigger than him. And, you know, for what, what he did for college basketball and what he meant to so many people, I mean, you can't miss that impact. 2020 sucks. We all know that. And now we're getting, you know, this stuff happening, you know, late in the year. And we're like, you know, can this year be over already? Yeah. I, the best John Thompson story I heard was, um, you know, he had the Alonzo Mourning. Everybody remembers Zoe coming into that program. And apparently at that time, 
in that area around Georgetown University. I mean, it was obviously some of the some of the rougher, tougher neighborhoods. There was, uh, you know, drug trafficking that was going on, and and there was a lot of basketball that got weaved into that drug world. The um, the, the rival sort of uh, drug factions were funding amateur basketball teams that were playing games and a lot of money was being wagered on it. And so Lonzo Mourning was recruited by one of the major drug dealers in that area in the off season to come play some basketball games. And yeah. so thought, well, what's the harm? You know, I'm just playing in a pickup game. This is good competition. I'm staying in shape. John Thompson found out about it and called him in and got a DEA agent to come into the room with him and explain to him, this guy that he was interacting with, how bad he was. And yeah. uh, I heard Alonzo Mourning say uh, in the last couple of days that it saved his life too. Cause he said, I had no idea. I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. And here was this father figure that John Thompson was to so many kids over the years. And yeah. probably a lot of kids we never even heard about you and I, we talk about Alan Iverson and Alonzo Mourning. I mean, there had to be dozens and dozens and dozens of oh, yeah. he just cared about cause they were kids. Yeah. You know, and like I said, I'm fortunate to have had, college coaches that cared about me. I obviously told you about Coach Miglio. And then even earlier in this episode, I acknowledged I don't even get my internship with you if not for Tim Cleary, who was my college right. basketball coach and was able to connect those dots. So I um, really feel for, you know, a lot of his, you know, former players that he coached and, and really the world of basketball in general because he made a huge impact. And like I said, it, I, I got to acknowledge Chadwick Bozeman as well, um, you know, being that, um, you know, he's the first black superhero. You know, me growing yeah. up, all my superheroes were black, but they weren't in Marvel films. So, you know, to see Chaz Chadwick Boseman in my adult years, you know, be this superhero that I imagine, you know, based on how things were structured and had gone throughout, you know, the earlier portion of my lifetime that I would probably never see the day where we had that. So um, real unfortunate to hear about his passing, but more importantly, to hear about his strength before passing and all that he was able to do and accomplish while being sick and filming these movies to make sure that, you know, we as society had something that we could treasure for generations. That was a huge deal. Yeah. I think it's really interesting too, because you bring up, uh, you know, uh, you know, here is, here's the superhero who is black that we haven't seen before. And, but, you know, even before that, I, you know, he played Jackie Robinson, which I thought was yeah. a really interesting parallel because Jackie did that himself in baseball right he breaks the color line and becomes this uh and, and i wondered how much of his performance in portraying jackie robinson and then later you know here's wakanda you know and i yeah. i thought i wondered how much that in his mind resonated that here he was himself doing what jackie did all those yeah. years Absolutely, man. That 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 was huge. So rest in peace to all of them. Condolences to their families, friends, and fans. Um, but I know you got to get out of here because you got the Ball Face Truth Radio Show to do in about an hour or so. But one last question: yeah. um, You're somebody who, who's well accomplished in this industry. You've been able to do a lot. You've been able to experience a lot. Um, you've been able to see sort of different eras. You know, when it comes to the sports media landscape and where things once were, where things continue to go. And, and even, you know, you, you've got kids, so you, you're starting to see things from an entirely different lens from even yours and the particular work that you do, but, you know, from what they do and what they're into and what they're interested in. Um, what would you say to young sports journalists um, that are looking away to make a way in this industry? 
Well, I can say that it's a moving target, right? And when I started, it was newspapers. And then suddenly newspaper people were doing television and radio. And then it became multimedia. And then everybody's got a YouTube channel. And now your social media uh, platform, you know, becomes um, important. Uh, I, would, I would say this. Um, it's a moving target. So be flexible. Be mercurial as you're in that world. Um, don't get attached to one thing. Uh, you are a great example of uh, there's networking that happens just because uh, it doesn't have to be a formal internship. It can just be the relationship you have with your coach who then calls me and says, hey, do you have an internship? And I said, well, I'm always looking for smart, driven people. And here comes Devon through the door. Yeah. And, you know, take advantage of that. And also, I would say be patient. There's a lot of people who want it to happen fast. Um, you know, if it would have happened too fast for me, I wouldn't have been ready. So there's some growth that you have to have and some struggle that you have to have where you really make growth, right? And so you need that. And I also think that, you know, nowadays your brand is bigger than maybe the company that you work for. My brand is bigger than the radio station I work for. My brand is bigger than the sports department at the Oregonian. It's, so really focus on building your own brand and controlling that and not, not compromising where you wanna go and what you believe in. And don't listen to the people who tell you there's not gonna be any jobs and that media is dead. Uh, sports media is alive and well. There are more people reading me and listening to me than ever. And it's just that the format has changed. It's like, you know, we used to get the candy out of the Pez dispenser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't do that anymore. Now you yeah. walk in and you got 50 varieties of uh, nerds on the shelf at uh, your 7-Eleven. So yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it's a moving target. Be flexible. The people who have been flexible, I think, are thriving. And, and uh, there's a real thirst for quality content out there. And it's why this podcast works. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Well, you know, I got to give you your flowers one more time before you head out of here. Um, you know, I told you this before off the air, but um, there's a book that actually just got published yesterday called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Uh, it's written by uh, Jessica Luther, who's a New York Times bestselling author, um, and Kavitha Davidson, works for The Athletic, hosts their national podcast. I, I actually had them scheduled to come here on the Wake Up and Win podcast next week to talk about it. And, you know, I was fortunate to be able to, you know, have a statement uh, published in that book. And, and I made a statement for the book and it made the cut. So that was pretty cool. And, you know, I definitely acknowledged you and, and your impact and your influence on me and my career. And, you know, basically, you know, you instilling the confidence in me to be who I am and do things my way, um, you know, and don't worry about the rest. Things will sort of fall into place. But, you know, lean into who I am, lean into what I believe and, and what I stand for. And, you know, I've done that and I've been able to, you know, have a lot of great experience this thus far in my what four year career <laughs> being in media. Um, so yeah, I greatly appreciate you for that. And like I said, the influence you've had on me, um, the ways you've helped me out in my career, man. And like I said, I'm keeping it rocking, keeping it trekking forward. You should. And you know, it's a great example because, you know, I look at my own career path and you'll probably look at yours, you know, 15 years from now and you'll see times in which things didn't go well or you thought you failed or, didn't work out the way you thought it would. And, um, you know, I think all of that, uh, you know, it's just like sports teams, you know, bad things happen. People get yeah. knee injuries, just keep moving forward. Keep showing that resilience. You have talent. I ultimately find, uh, the people that are talented people that can create great content like you. Yes, sir. Uh, it's not accidental. 
It's not yeah. accidental that you're doing this and that you're successful with it. Appreciate it, man. On that note, we are going to leave y'all. Oh, before that, tell them where to find you, your columns, your radio show. I, I got to uh, promote you, you out here. <laughs> find me on Twitter, <laughs> at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. If you get there, uh, you're going to get all the content. If you want to see my family, go to Instagram. Just search John Canzano. There you go. Absolutely, man. On that note, we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win. Go win.